The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Yesterday was born in Pennsylvania in 1959, living in Cleveland, Ohio until the age of 10. As a young boy, he was a voracious reader and alongside athletics, intrigued with news and print and television. Following his graduation from the University of Wisconsin with a BA double major in political science and economics, he was recruited onto the John Glenn's presidential campaign and traveled with astronaut John Glenn in what became a prestigious opportunity and life experience. He went on to work in real estate in Chicago, earning further success, later becoming chairman of McCook Metals in 2001. After a challenging period in litigation, he is now pursuing business opportunities with profound visions of growth, both personally and for those he partners with in the corporate community. Michael Lynch, welcome to In Discussion. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be here. It's, Thanks uh, for the invitation. Uh, you are very welcome. It's a, it's a great privilege to have you on the program, Michael. Like to start this program a bit about your background before we go into the vision and the um, discussions, really complementing the, the discussions that we had uh, some days ago about the future of this world and business and uh, corporate and social responsibility. You have always been in Illinois. Is that your, your background? Um, I moved into Illinois from Cleveland, Ohio when I was in fifth grade. My father, who uh, left the U.S. military uh, in 1963, he was a captain in the U.S. Army, uh, had six kids and wanted to stay in and was facing a tour to Vietnam. And my mother put extreme pressure on him to leave the military to get into civilian life so she could have another child. So. At the fifth grade, uh, we moved from Cleveland, Ohio, where my father was a, a CPA, a partner in the, the accounting firm of Price Waterhouse and Coopers, and was hired to join a, a young, growing company in Chicago called American House of Supply. And uh, I moved from a middle-class neighborhood in Cleveland, Ohio, to uh, a different environment, uh, a very uh, privileged uh, community uh, suburb in north of Chicago called Lake Forest, Illinois. What was it with family life? Were you, were you a close-knit family? We were. We were um, very Catholic. My mom was uh, German Catholic. Her grandfather came from Germany just before the, the commencement of World War II uh, to leave the Nazi oppression. And my father was Irish Catholic, and his grandfather left Ireland to come to the United States to fulfill his American dreams. So Catholicism was a very strong part of our upbringing. We were, I've been an altar boy since I was in second grade in Cleveland.
one, and then when we moved here, my father was a deacon, and I used to serve Mass till eighth grade with my, my brothers. And so it was a very strong ritual of Catholicism and, and the elements that come with that, you know, Catholic school, uh, discipline, uh, the rigid type of uh, imposition on how your life is. And in one way, it's very beneficial because the discipline made us very productive you know, siblings, and, and our family was very close-knit at that time. I know when you were young that you were a great reader, and I know that you had a great interest in athletics. What sort of reading was it that interested you then? What sort of books? Um, from athletics, because uh, I reached my growth spurt later in life. In my junior year in, in high school, I literally grew nine inches. So I was your typical short, stocky, uh, athletic individual that played football and baseball and loved sports and so because of my size I had a, a sense of insecurity of, against the bigger players so I had role models like Fran Tarkenton who despite his size became a very successful quarterback in the NFL so I read biographies of athletes that would overcome you know either uh, disabilities uh, whether stuttering or size disabilities to become you know just great athletes overcome tremendous obstacles and where most people would throw into town and give up, uh, I looked to them as role models and tried to duplicate and learn from them how I too could, you know, become successful both in athletics and academics. In that time, uh, I'm assuming that we're talking about the 1960s. Uh, you had mentioned that your father was. Did he actually visit Vietnam, or, or did he manage to avoid that situation? He. Um, he wanted to serve. He was very uh, proud of his military experience in the U.S. Army. He liked it. He liked the discipline. At a young age, he was a captain, and he had a bright future. Uh, and had he spent one or two tours in Vietnam, it was his opinion that he could come back and, and become colonel. And he really looked towards the future in the military. He, he liked it. My mother, on the other hand, and, and my father was very conservative, very pro-military, pro military pro American. My mom, on the other side, was um, because of her social leanings and her attempts to, uh, you know, always was helping the poor, was against the war. Um, and there was a lot of tension between them. And so, because she was pregnant with another one of, of, of my siblings, she put pressure on my father to leave the military and to uh, get into civilian life. Now, in your late teens, what sort of education were you looking at? Did you have a specific idea of what you wanted to to focus on in your life? I did. Um, uh, two things were happening at the time. One is I, I went to um, a Jesuit high school on the North Shore. Uh, it's the largest at the time in the country, 1600, uh, all-male uh, boys' school called Loyola Academy. And um, I was intermixing with sons of, you know, of fathers that were captains of industry. And it, to me, I was, I was, it drew a very strong appeal on how these men became CEOs of corporations. At the same, th at the same time, my father was becoming very successful in corporate America and was going up the fast track. And when he joined American Household Supply, he was a controller, but they moved him on to do the acquisition work. So on weekends, because my father traveled extensively and at that time had seven kids, uh, he would take meetings at home, so he would spend time with his family. So at Saturdays, there would be bankers and attorneys at our home, and I would sit around the kitchen table and just overhear conversations with my father or in his, in his business office, or den at the time, as they called it. So 
it was a, a dynamic period of time from the standpoint of things were changing in the 70s. Uh, American Household Supply was an entrepreneurial company that was founded by an entrepreneur, Foster McGall. It grew to become a, a very successful corporation that my father was part of that, uh, that success. So uh, my father also emblazoned on myself and my brothers primarily that, that you should get experience in corporate America and then become your own man. In other words, go out and become an entrepreneur, build your own business. Uh, he, would, from time to time, would discuss to me intimately about some of the um, negativities of, of being in corporate America and the politics. Uh, and he was nudging myself and my brothers to become, you know, entrepreneurs. So at a young age, relatively young age, that was ingrained in us that uh, we would look outside of working for a corporation and develop, you know, new business models, new business systems, and, and go out and and start something, and, and my brothers and I have, have all done that. Did your father understand the objectives of the Founding Fathers? Did he very much understand that it was a republic that was ruled by God, um, giving every individual in America the tools to become his or her own capitalist? Is that the way he saw it back then? He saw it as, um, yes, he liked the United States. He, he saw that the Constitution provided protection. Uh, he was, however, frustrated by the large, what was happening in the 70s and the growth in the corporations that the organizational man. Um, I remember very vividly my father, you know, as I, if I picked him up at the train station uh, where we commute from Evanston to Lake Forest, getting off in his gray or, or, or blue uh, business suit with his Dwight shirts and silk rep ties. And, Back in the 70s, that was the standard. It wasn't until later in the 80s where capital was provided for entrepreneurs in large sums that an individual like myself or my father, if he so desired, could go borrow money and buy companies. Um, so he was a big believer in the American dream. He was proud that his children, coming from his background, where he grew up in very modest, you know, his, his father graduated from Penn State, you know, the day that the Great Depression started and was an all-American you know, player and struggled because of the Depression where there, you know, was, there were no jobs. And so that was very much envisioned in, 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 in kind of a scar across his, his, his psychic that despite this, you know, he's seen the leaner times in life. And in the 70s and 80s, we experienced great growth and you know, great economic times in this country. Did he have any influence upon your decision to study political science and economics at Wisconsin? It was more my mother, believe it or not. I, I, if you look at economics, that's really the business aspect. Uh, at the same time, my mother was a classic Kennedy Democrat and pushed for you know, uh, social change, pushing for the fact that the vested interests have to you know, help the, the, the poor. And so there was this kind of mixed messages and, and sometimes political tension in our own household about views. And in and, and one way, that was very good because they, they pushed that, uh, that academics and learning expose you to uh, resources, and so when I went to the University of Wisconsin, I selected both because I was I enjoyed both of them. I knew with economics I could get into a, a B school, uh, business school, and then with of course a political science uh, and good grades, I, I could be fast track in law school. And I I did apply, and I, I did get accepted in joint degree, but I deferred my enrollment, and I never attended law school or. or uh, obtained my MBA. Did you enjoy academia? Um, I did at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, 
prior to that, and, and this is not to denigrate my Jesuit um, brothers, I was not uh, excited about learning as I in, in Loyola because it was much more structured at the time. In the 70s, it was uh, the, the typical Latin that was taught. It was mandatory. It was the, the chalkboard. It was it, To me, it was not a, a, an exciting place to learn. Uh, when I went to the University of Wisconsin for the first time in, in my life, and I honestly said I was excited about going to class and the classes I took and the people that I was, was partaking in those discussions with. It was a, it's a large academic institution. It's 40,000 students, of which only you know 15,000 undergrads. And so to me, it, intellectually, that was some of the biggest academic growth I had. At, and it was just a phenomenal period of time to be at that university and, and learning. And, through those relationships, I have friends to this day because of my experience there. It seems sad, does it not, that so many students are graduating from universities today with MBAs in business, international business, and any other sphere of education, and yet there are not the opportunities there now. I often have kids approaching me, Michael, who say, well, I'm, I'm a Master's of Business Admi Administration now, and I'm ready to go. And I find myself saying, well, you know, I tell you what, come back when you're my age, you're 47 years old, and I may just consider that you are a Master's at something, because it, it, it seems to me that they are in this education that, that is not really applying to the changing world that we have today in business. I agree with you. It's, it's, it's almost a, a, a sanitization of the educational process for future leaders. Um, typically, the fast track with MBAs, and I, I think it's also led to the demise or the, the troubles and tribulations we're facing now, because you have individuals that were fast-tracked that really didn't have experience running a business or stop on the, the shop floor, where the prior generations did, where literally the corporate leaders that came out of the 60s, or especially after World War II, you know, they came back and they had some form of education, but, you know, it was classic that if you work for an investment banking firm or you work for a manufacturing company, you either start in the mailroom, the investment banking firm, and work your way up, or on the shop floor. And there was a huge demand for operational experience, running things, fixing things. I, I, I suppose in many ways, you know, with my life, looking back to England in the 1960s, there were still apprenticeships, there were still trades. And it, and it appears very much that, that anywhere, even in this country now, given the dilution of manufacturing and engineering, that, that there are not those opportunities anymore. That's correct. And the fact that combined with the new opportunities have moved offshore for various reasons, including tax incentives for the Fortune 1000 companies to rather invest here in, in America, they're, they're incentivized to invest offshore. And so... You don't have those opportunities to become, you know, from the fact of our apprenticeship, a new types of opportunities in manufacturing. They just don't exist. You left the university, you graduated successfully, and I know that you spent a year on John Glenn's presidential campaign. That must have been an extraordinary experience for a young man at that time. It was. It's. Uh, I had taken off a year of school between my sophomore and junior at the University of Wisconsin to uh, work for actually a family friend who came out of the Kennedy uh, administration who was involved with Carter Mondale. And so I was at uh, 19, I was a paid 
uh, field director for Ohio uh, in the Carter Moundale campaign, which is an extraordinary experience, and was, you know, uh, they had the great debate there, which was at the time, uh, that was when Reagan came into Cleveland and had the famous uh, uh, debate where Jimmy Carter lost the election after that debate. It was, uh, I remember very vividly because the polls were plus or minus out of the way that Reagan or Carter would be the next president. Carter always the president, would it be reelected or Reagan would be a new president. And so I, I had, you know, uh, rubbed shoulders with Hamilton Jordan and Jody Powell and was exposed to some very, very uh, influential politicians in both the state of Ohio and in the Carter administration. Um, and we lost the election, but because of my uh, desire at the time to, uh, uh, you know, especially in politics and in, in education, I accepted a paid internship with the Environmental Protection Agency in Washington, D.C., where I was assigned to the Superfund project, was, which was the new program that was um, created that taxed the chemical petrochemical companies in the United States to clean up these toxic waste dumps. So through that experience, which was extraordinary in the context I had made, I was recruited uh, to join the uh, Glenn campaign because of the individuals I met, primarily Bill White, who was the uh, administrative assistant to John Glenn, to uh, work for him. The aforementioned campaign project that you were on, was that the Carter-influenced project, which almost even back then indicated the beginnings of a reality over carbon emissions, over uh, climate control? Yes. What, what drew me to him is, and, and I met personally, is, met him personally, was uh, he was a visionary. And he was uh, 20 years, in my opinion, too soon. Uh, but he was laying the groundwork where we could, uh, remember we had the energy crisis back in the 70s. And so we had a paralysis, economic paralysis. So he was a leader basically trying to eliminate our need for uh, you know, oil and reduce the carbon footprint. The problem was he wasn't an effective communicator. Reagan was. And if you'd switch shoes, and Reagan was the one that was articulating that uh, policy direction, uh, I'm sure we'd be in a different place today. He was a great man. He was a nuclear scientist by training uh, in the Navy. And so he, he got bogged down in details where Reagan was much more effective communicator that could actually communicate to the average guy in the street. As brilliant as Carter was, he couldn't, you know, communicate and, and get the population behind him. And so he had the vision, he just couldn't carry the plan. You, after some time, moved to Chicago and you established yourself in business, really starting from nothing, reminding me, reading about your story, al almost paralleling uh, Richard Branson. I remember when Richard Branson began, he <laughs> went to his uncle and asked for £3,000 and and made his way and became the great business leader that he is today. And I suspect that that was very much your journey. What was it like for you after establishing yourself in Chicago? What was it like being immersed in that area of business within a place like Chicago? Well, it was um, it, it was uh, very exciting from the standpoint of, of the, the way I did it and how I did it. However, it was it was it was frustrating from the standpoint of um, this still was a, a non entrepreneurial town. If you look at where the entrepreneurs and where the capital was growing, it was on the east and west coast. 
it was very difficult. Once I had to go and acquire a company and had to borrow capital exceeding $30 million, uh, the local banks would not do that. They, they were very rigid. They were very pro-corporate. Uh, and there wasn't much entrepreneurial-type activity here at the time. So I literally went to New York and, and my friends at Bear Stearns Investment Banking House, you know, raised my first $100 million offering to buy a company. And I went to the, the, the West Coast with uh, Libra Securities. Uh, Chuck Yarmione, who I'm very close to today, was an individual that saw our vision and, and, and backed us and raised stunning amounts of money. But at the same time, we had a record of paying those dollars off in very quick fashion because of our ability to turn around uh, unprofitable business in a short period of time. Um, if you look at Chicago, it was still very much controlled by, and I don't want it to be derogatory, but by good old boys that didn't have the vision of growing these businesses and look beyond entrepreneurial startups. And, and this is, you know, in the, the 80s primarily. You had um, corporations today that were prominent then are no longer in existence. And you look at the skyline of Chicago, you know, for example, uh, you know, Amoco Oil that was bought by, you know, BP. You go down the list that most of the corporations that were based here have been absorbed by outsiders, including the banking system. You know, First National Bank, American National Bank, LaSalle Bank are all gone, absorbed by outsiders. Looking back, though, do you have any regrets remaining in Chicago, notwithstanding those fiscal limitations? Do you still think that it was a good decision to stay in Chicago uh, rather than move to a banking system orientated city like New York or even to the West Coast? Um, it kept me grounded in what I was doing. Uh, at the time uh, when I was did my largest deal, and it was a $400 million uh, gross revenue business, and we put up $20 million of capital and borrowed $155 million, I had 2,000 employees, uh, primary union, union employees, but um, Midwestern-based primarily. And so the ground roots that I came from, Midwest, from the Industrial Belt, from Cleveland to Chicago, was still much emblazoned in, in me. And I, I, I was taking plants that were here in industrialized Midwest and making them profitable and saving jobs. And so I, I, I liked the fact that I was grounded. I could come home to Chicago. I could walk my plants and, and, and see my family and, and do the things that kept me grounded. I, I think looking back today and, and you know, in, in July of 2010, I do have regrets because I didn't understand the judicial and political system existed here because I was, I never ran across a situation like that. I very much was a self-made man and I always believe that with God's assistance you can attain your dreams and I lived it. I didn't think uh, a structure like this existed. So uh, looking now what I've learned, I, I, I would have left. Looking at Detroit, I can remember when I was a child in the 60s in England Michael, we only had one channel, and that was BBC. And we used to have many government-produced films, and they were always on Detroit. They were always on the powerhouse of America. Um, and they were quite profound. And yet, much of that has gone now. Uh, do you think that if you attempted to start anything on the scale that you had then, it would present a lot more difficulties given the economic situation up there, the loss of that base manufacturing? 
I think that that community could have resurrected itself had they continued to promote innovation. If you really looked at what created Detroit were entrepreneurs. The automobile industry from Henry Ford to others was started by entrepreneurs. Uh, as you know, we destroyed our competitors through the World War II, primarily the Germans and the Japanese, and they were uh, rebuilding their industries, and we taught them how to do that. We finally had foreign competition as Americans in the 70s. And Detroit refused to innovate. And, and, and there was a, an oligarchy, in my opinion, and, and they, there was no incentive to go out and create new forms of, of vehicles or new cutting-edge technologies or better cars that are safer cars. It wasn't until the Japanese and the Germans finally had competitive automobiles that finally Americans woke up, and in some cases with General Motors and Chrysler, probably too late. Ford being, uh, especially with the great-grandson, he, he actually saw the writing on the wall and, and revigorated, which in my opinion is still a great company. But it was a combination of many things of which you, you, didn't, you didn't have an industrial po- policy program instituted by the government. You had really kind of uh, fragmentation with uh, labor unions and corporate chiefs not really working together. Uh, you had the unions much more powerful for various reasons. And you had corporate leaders that, that did not do the necessary things to maintain their competitiveness. And so it's to me, it's very sad today to see Detroit and what it's become. That offers a great segue here. We're talking about corporate leaders. And it takes me on to corporate governance ethics today. Uh, we're clearly moving into a completely different paradigm, both in the corporate sector and also in, in the personal way that we lead our lives. Looking at corporate governance, though, how do you think that that has to change, especially in a place like Chicago? Um, I like the American system as it exists as long as you have oversight provisions. Um, human nature is human nature. You're going to have good and bad, good and evil in, in any situation, in any form of economic structure. The changes that have to take place, and I, I believe it's changing because I think individuals like myself and others are saying enough, and they want to see changes to allow growth uh, both in you know our state and in also in this country, you have what's emerged out of this 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 last two decades is a political elite, uh, mainly driven by you know uh, corporate funding. There has to be a major reform in campaign finance to allow individuals that are just as capable as the current U.S. senator, but the current U.S. senator may have twenty million dollars, thirty million dollars in the bank because of donations. There, ha- there has to be some restructuring in how we uh, regulate you know, both the, the, the political elections and the way corporations do certain things. Now, this means then that I have many guests coming on who are corporate leader mentors who, who work with leaders in blue chips and, and change their mindset, change the way that they think about themselves personally, think about their workforce, think about the consumer do you think that there is still a long way to go Uh, and with that said is it in in your mind the correct way to start with the ceo of a company and the board members around that executive board or would you say that there's equal responsibility for those in on the shop floor to do that as well i think it's both i i think the organization has to become 
intertwine with each other and they have to work with each other. I think with the digital age, you now have transparency and you have the ability to both the CEO in the corner office and the individual shop floor to work together. They're, they're, CEOs can't hide anymore. Um, you know, one of my nemesis at a Fortune 30 company, when I was uh, pursuing him in an antitrust action, I was very vocal in the news media about he never walked a plant since he became chairman. And um, he didn't. And yet he was running a $26 billion company uh, in manufacturing. And the, the, the true successful CEOs are the ones that really are in touch with what is going on on the factory floor and with their businesses. I think today you have to be that because technology and competition is moving so fast that if you're out of touch, your organization won't survive if you're not an active CEO, you know, communicating with your employees. It's just that business model is, is doomed to failure, in my opinion. Well, there's a greater level of consciousness on all planes for anybody in any position in a company now to wake up, I suppose, and realize that every single action, everything that you say, every decision you make affects every single person in that company. And of course, that then affects every single consumer through the product or the service that you produce. What is it going forward, though, that potentially can change the system? I think this word greed is used so much, I think it's being possibly overused. But that is still the case even today after we've seen this terrible meltdown of the last three years. Do you think that it's an individual or a group of people or some sort of other independent body that has to come in and oversee not only large corporate business but also the government in, in changing the way generally that we all operate? I, I think there's got to be a, a revisit on how we operate and how we make it better. I, I'm, a, I, I, I'm a firm believer of the capitalist system because to date, I think it's the best system that we human beings have created to date. If there's a better system, you know, I'm, I'm all yours. Um, however, there's got to be a regulatory process to prevent extremes like we've seen. And, you know, and, and there's got to be incentives for businesses to invest in technologies and, and, and methodologies that make it a better place. For example, you know, if you look at the tax structure, and, and I'm not faulting corporate America, but there's incentives actually to move your uh, manufacturing offshore. And you get an immediate deduction of those CapEx costs against your earnings, and you don't have to post those earnings to a later date. So there's got to be a revisiting on how we as Americans conduct in this global society and, and what the incentives are to create jobs here in the United States. Is that in part brought around by a diplomatic solution, or do you think that politics doesn't play a part in that? You know, I'd like to believe that. Um, uh, but, you know, there were times where we had political leaders that had the gumption to do things of this nature. I just don't see it. Um, uh, in, in both sides of the aisle, uh, you see today you have, um, because of the way that politicians are structured, where they have to raise money consistently and the way the lobbying effect is in Washington, you have leaders that uh, are more uh, uh, tending to the special interests versus to their voters. If you can restructure the way uh, politicians run for office as far as financing, I think you'll get a different breed in there and you'll 
the good politicians that are there, the good U.S. senators and congressmen that want to do the right thing, they can do the right thing because they're not under pressure by the lobbyists for, for money contributions to make sure they stay in office. So there's, there's got to be a, a rethinking on how we do that. There's been an attempt to reform campaign financing, and it gets shot down. And so, in my opinion, until you really address that issue, you're not going to have strong leaders, unless you get a very wealthy human being that wants to step in, you know, and take on these challenges that's not tied to money because he or she has money. Until you get that type of person, I just don't see it changing. You know, you don't have strong political leadership that you had in the past. I'm a great social historian buff, although, on the other hand, I've also learned that you cannot go over and over this historical substance for too long. But there are many things that people like Benjamin, and there are many points that you would see in the fielding papers that were written about the way that the Republic was brought together that do have or do apply to where we are today. Do you think that those people, those great writers, those great fathers back then can be looked upon as reference for today? Absolutely. And I think that's where you draw strength. Because at the time, think of the adversity they were facing at the time that they were doing the things they were doing. And think, and to, to us, it makes, in today's, you know, the challenge that we face is, is in our society, especially with now the global perspective, you could draw strength from, from and leadership uh, attributes from what they said and what they did. Uh, I think it's a great way to draw from their experience. I think the interesting thing with the original Republic is that they set up a concept for America where people were their own tools, they were therefore their own capitalists. And as the fielding papers talked to, the government was had negative impact. It was a regulatory body, but it had negative impact upon the way that people lived, upon the way that people took their business, the way that people made their living. Again, and I'm only throwing this out, but that is another point that I feel that should be re-strengthened in the arguments today, that perhaps we are being limited by big government, perhaps, and, and this is nothing new because I see this happening in the European Union. Perhaps if lobbyists and politicians and big corporate leaders looked at that very point that more of a negative impact would actually stir people in this country and around the world to become invigorated again, to actually become their own powerhouses. I agree with that. You know, and that's something I espouse to. I'm a big believer in self-reliance. And in today's environment, sometimes that's not politically correct. And so I, too, have concern that the European socialism model that is in some of those countries are now creeping into the U.S. society. It's, we also had also massive amounts of immigrants that were educated that wanted to come to this country and build it and, and saw it as a land of opportunity. You're seeing less and less of that. You're seeing immigrants that come in, get educated in our great educational system at the collegiate level, and leave to go back to their own country to create these new jobs, create these new uh, uh, self-reliant uh, businesses. You're starting to lose it here, and, and and I particularly am concerned by that. You know, and you know, we, we developed as Americans, you know, lithium technology, battery technology years ago, the solar technology, and yet those jobs moved offshore. And so you don't have that type of, you know, self-reliant, you know, pick it up from the bootstraps mentality that existed that was espoused to me as a young child. So 
I too, David, am concerned that that that, that piece what made us so strong has started diminishing, and you don't see those incentives. There's some exceptions, and I still think it's not over for the U.S. But as long as we continue to maintain, you know, innovativeness and, and desire to live in our society, I, I think we can overcome that. I think people are starting to say, you know, this is bad what's happening here, and we need to make changes. So there appears to be, to me a misunderstanding of the narrative around technology. I talk to many business leaders who look at technology and they simply say, well, technology has led to half of our academic, entrepreneurial people from leaving this country or it's led to this brain drain. Is it not that technology has a deeper meaning that people are not identifying with today in that narrative? It's surely not about that, but it's technology that has much more meaning in the way that we live, we work, we interact, that we have to become much more excited about what is out there that we can make happen by using technology, but perhaps we don't understand what that technology is at the moment. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, the interesting thing is, and I'm very, very positive about where technology is going. Um, and, and frankly, I think it's a great time to be alive here on Earth because the fundamental changes for good that can use, be used by the new technologies, the, the ability to literally uh, create more per capita income globally and people making more money and better their living standards. The, and we Americans are only 4, 4 or 5% of the world population. And so uh, the, the, the rapid growth of emerging middle classes in other uh, countries like India and China create tremendous opportunities to implement these new technologies now in the United States for a better living, but also globally. So the opportunities to create wealth is just stunning. You look at the Google model, and you look at one of them was a Russian immigrant here, and he left Russia because of what took place there in a Italian state. And in a period of time that they created that technology from going public, the wealth that those two founders took place in, in, in less than a decade is just mind-boggling. I suppose the question that's on people's minds is that when you've lost the manufacturing base and you've lost this industry that we had back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, people automatically say, well, you don't have any any industry in which I can use trades or or I can become an apprentice or I, or that ensures that I don't have to go through the academic system. Is it not true, though, even though that we have millions of people unemployed in this country, that, that technology can become that manufacturing base again, but reshaped in a different form? Exactly. And, and, and create job creation. Anytime where there's new technology, you look at electricity or the automobile, the, the, there's advancements of other forms of, of businesses that support that new technology. And it grows and you have job creation. Um, I've seen technology in, in our plastics industry eliminate jobs at the press uh, because you have a robotic interface that's a lot more uh, precise and less expensive, replacing a, a human that takes that part and put it in a box. However, you, to grow that business, you need more people at higher skill sets, a better uh, wage structure to run those machines. So there, there, there is a, a rebirth of what's taking place in America as far as technologies, and there can be a rebirth as far as manufacturing jobs. Manufacturing can take place here in the United States just as much as it is in China. Um, what's happening, though, with technology is you're going to see 
the when it comes to physical labor of actually manufacturing parts be eliminated with automation. However, there's other applications of that individual that can be applied. There just has to be a, a tremendous effort at, at, at the federal level of retraining people for these new jobs, and and make sure they're that the government's allocating dollars that make make sense on new technology, not squander monies for road building. What does that do? How does that enhance our society when we could give monies for bullet trains and, and, and instead of putting on existing rail tracks, build new tracks that can allow a, a train to go faster than the current system. So with the correct allocation of capital and some industrial retraining and some federal support, I think you'll see a tremendous rebirth in America. With all that said... A great friend of mine, Bruce Piasaki, who is a great writer, and we share this great interest in E.F. Schumacher and his Small is Beautiful concept and the idea of frugality, notwithstanding that we want to see a nation rebuilt and therefore, because of that, a world rebuilt because of America reestablishing itself. Would you agree with me that we still need to be a more frugal society in the future? We need to look less at material materialism or money as idealistic principles again going back to the boardroom back to those leaders that we we look to for an example is it them that needs to teach everybody in this country that we can reinvent ourselves but we do need to have this art of frugality going forwards i agree and i agree both at the government level and at the corporate level that monies that are spent to implement these new technologies are done in a very uh, frugal fashion and done with uh, tremendous research and discipline. Uh, and not to take the fear out of taking risks, but to make sure that monies are allocated to the right technology that grow the organization and create jobs. Uh, to me, it's mind-boggling that, you know, the, and I think President Obama had a, a good uh, idea as far as building these bullet trains in the Midwest, and I think it will create jobs, it will create spin-offs of other forms of job creation, yet instead of, of, of creating a, an infrastructure that can allow the trains to go 300 miles, much like Europe and, and what's happening in China, where they're having tremendous investment in their high-speed rail system, they're going to use it on old lines. Um, for example, uh, the, the train that they're talking about from Chicago-Milwaukee is going to go along the Chicago Northwestern, and it's got to share with freight trains. And, that, and to me, it's only going to go 110 miles an hour. Why squander $8 billion? Where in reality, you know, other countries are putting their bullet trains, much, much, my brother, who's my partner, said, on highways. Above the highway system, they're putting the infrastructure for bullet trains that allows you to go three, 350 miles an hour. So here's the government giving money, and what they're doing is applying it to relatively old technologies uh, to allow, uh, in their opinion, a bullet train that was supposed, could go 300 miles if they put the infrastructure dollars another application and applying to old technology to me that's squandering money that that's not frugality that's not really looking at what's the best solution on the best technology should we therefore be investing back into small business back into the people on the ground looking more at the village economic basis as it were before we start expanding into these greater ideas of communication and transportation I think we should do both. I think we have a decade where we, as Americans, because of the competitive nature of a global society, have to start stepping it up, or we are going to become like some of the European societies. If we really don't do it, you will have a brain drain. 
you're starting to see it. You have, for example, Applied Materials, which is an excellent uh, Silicon Valley company. It's a tremendous startup, tremendous American success story that's now moving their R&D out of the United States to China. And with those technologies will be developed, and, and where are they going to be domesticated? Back to the States? doesn't work that way. So I think we have to have an industrialized policy that's coordinated, and you have to have incentives driven by bank lending and tax incentives that allows the small business uh, individual to be able to have a productive uh, business. There needs to be a revamping that. What's happened since the financial crisis is, and I've seen this with some of my colleagues, there is no bank lending at a certain level. There's money for the large uh, institutions. There's no money, frankly, for the smaller businesses. And so there's got to be incentives for banks to lend to the small entrepreneurs and to the local person down the street that has a business, a retail business or a food business, and to promote jobs. Because those are the next, you know, Walmarts, those are the next Googles, those individuals that create something and can grow it. That's the American success story. The problem, though, that we are faced with is the many, many mistakes that have been made in Wall Street and in the city of London over the last three or four years. And I suppose that the regulation yesterday that President Obama brought in is going to suppress any further problems. But Wall Street does have a pretty bad name at the moment, does it not? And I'm sure that it's bitten to a great degree and has many, many regulations placed upon them now where it's going to be difficult to lend. I agree with that. I, um, I, I'm somewhat of a product of Wall Street because Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenrette and Bear Stearns were uh, my investment bankers. They were sources of capital for entrepreneurs. They allowed someone from my modest background to become what I became. Um, uh, you know, part of the, what took place in the housing crisis, real, frankly, was incentives by the federal government and um, with really an oversight on how they structured those synthetic mortgages. Um, so it, it was a combination of greed, which in some extent, you know, if not checkered, creates problems that we're facing today, combined with an incentive, a powerful incentive on how to underwrite these mortgages and make them as collateralized mortgage-backed securities, synthetic securities. So the, the interesting thing is the dynamic of, of capitalism in Wall Street. Wall Street is going to reformulate itself. It already has. The talent at Bear Stearns has morphed in where they're creating their own new investment banking houses, doing some interesting things. And, and, and I'm fairly positive if, 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 if you can have oversight, if you can prevent what happened in the past, where the regulators, frankly, looked the other way and did not do what their duty was, you know, if you have that checks and balances, we can have a very productive capitalist system again without these extremes. In the final minutes of this first program, I'd like to look really at a wonderful Benjamin Franklin's statement that he made. Money has never made man happy, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more of it one has, the more one wants. I think that that is describing very well where we are in our world today, that we are somewhat guided and manipulated with money rather than the simpler, more realistic things in life. Would you agree with that, Michael? I agree with that. I, I, I think hopefully there's change. I'm starting to see it. I think as a human, once you have received a lot of financial benefits, um, you, you make a decision as a human being. It, 
the soul is filled by things that, in spirituality, in my opinion, the, the reality is the if you don't find a source that grounds you to do the good things here on earth, and you can constantly are pursuing money for the purpose of, of getting, attaining more money, it, it creates a hole. I, I think uh, our society has gone through this severe downturn, and a lot of people have been impacted, both rich and poor. And I think there's a, a questioning on why I'm here, you know, why, you know, I'm, especially my generation in our 40s, and, you know, we've done well successfully, but what's our purpose here? You know, I've obtained all this success and this wealth, but I'm not happy. I've seen that with my colleagues. I've seen it in some of my wives and, and my uh, couple of friends that they've sustained great success financially, but they're still not happy. So I would agree with your assessment. As we uh, have two minutes left on this first of our two programs, Michael, looking back over the last five years, how are you moving forward yourself in where you're going with your life, with your business, with your service for others? Yeah, it's, it's amazing how God works. I, um, I've picked up myself and dusted the dirt off and have focused and asked for direction on what uh, my purpose is here and what next business opportunity that I can have an impact on our society. And I'm happy to say that my brother and I have acquired a business that's going to be just a fundamental game changer in uh, agriculture and in, or, in organics. And it's going to change the way we consume uh, organic vegetables. It's, it's We have the ability to take with this technology and convert uh, an arid uh, land into a fertile agricultural environment. And so this technology that was created by an American entrepreneur that we acquired, uh, who is still with us, he's going to be involved in R&D, is just tremendous, exciting technology that allows for me and my brother to actually have an impact here, not only on in the United States, but across the globe. So. I'm very, very excited and positive and blessed that we've been given this opportunity to, to really do good things here on Earth. Well, certainly in our second program, we'll be looking at those uh, visions and the mission that you have moving forward and uh, possibly talking about uh, your journey from the last five or six years and going into greater detail about that. I thank you so much, Michael, for joining me for this first of two programs, and I look forward to joining you again for the second. Thank you. And, David, thank you for the privilege and opportunity to speak with you today. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program and got a measure of uh, Michael Lynch and his uh, immense uh, background in in business and in in life in general. We will be joining Mr. Lynch again in a second program. Meanwhile, wherever you are, I would wish you a good day. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. With that said, I would say good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Tune into Inner Speaks Old Ventures Talk Radio Show every Tuesday evening at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 Eastern, and learn how to let go of your past and create the reality you desire and deserve, allowing your inner communication to take place more easily without the interference of our noisy mind chatter or your ego. Inner Speaks Soul Adventures with Gene Adrian, right here on the Seventh Wave Network. As a new era approaches December 2012, Evolution invites you to expand awareness now to become the magnificent creator you forgot you are. Explore beyond current sensory perceptions with host Doreen Agostino to align body, mind, spirit, and unleash inner wealth. Discover and apply universal success principles to consciously and deliberately create your life. To align with inner truth, shine light of new thought, and joyfully prosper. Tune in Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Annie Arman, live. Teens, you have got to tune into this show and listen to your fellow teens. If you're out there confused because somebody is trying to put doubts in you, making you think that you can't do what you want to do, get it straight. You can, you will, and you will get it done no matter what. And don't ever give up because you're not alone. Don't miss Annie Arman live on Voice America, Wednesdays from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. Standard Time. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Approximately 1 in 150 children are affected by autism, giving autism the undesired ranking as the most prevalent childhood developmental disorder in the U.S. 67 children will be diagnosed today. That is nearly one child every 20 minutes. Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica, hosted by Terry Aranga, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Terry offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcast each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. 
Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about the show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business.